Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy and dominating the conversation of the news cycles once again is about systemic oppression, injustice, and this is all on the heels of a couple of incidents here in the last week or so the incident with George Floyd being killed by a police officer in Minnesota, as well as Christian Cooper and the incident in New York Central Park. And Katie and I wanted to talk about a lot of the therapist discussion around dealing with systemic oppression, and especially for therapists coming from a place of privilege, how to best do ally work. And a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about today, we are just going to put out there right away. We are two white privileged people having this conversation by ourselves. And we think that it's important to have this discussion here off to ourselves because for a lot of people wanting to do ally work, there is a jump to being a a helper, coming in to fix a situation that oftentimes gets in the way of letting what needs to happen thoughtfully happen because now all of a sudden the communities that are impacted are taking care of a bunch of allies while also trying to move their statements forward and get changes happening on a systemic basis. So calling it out from the very beginning, yes, we're white and privileged. We also want to explore how white privileged people can best come in and use our places in society to help echo this and how this plays out in the therapy room. This conversation is one that I feel really important for us to do. We've had conversations where we're talking with other members of marginalized populations, oppressed populations, and and we can link to those episodes in the show notes for that type of information. What we're really talking about, and, and Kurt, you said this before we started recording, is this idea that ally is a verb, not a noun. We want to talk about how to ally with oppressed folks using our privilege to help them not in standing up and saying, I'm an ally, I check a box, and now I can go back and be white and be comfortable. And I've really been grappling with something as a white woman because I've felt grief and I've felt trauma in watching what's happening. And I don't want to put that in a public space. When white women express distress, as the woman did who was threatening Christian Cooper, we know that people will come to our rescue. And I did not want to be rescued this week. 
I do not want to be rescued now. And I think it's something where the first thing I want to say is that we need to do our work in these spaces of talking with other white people, with our own therapists, so that we're not relying on people in marginalized communities to take care of us or changing the conversation to being about us. There's a book called White Fragility that I think is very important, especially for white women to read, but I think white men can read it as well. It's by Robin J. D'Angelo. Those ideas are something that a lot of people doing ally work have to grapple with every single time that incidents like these dominate the news. And I'm going to keep coming back to this point that allies do, they don't just say. In fact, Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll go out and say, don't call yourself an ally. Like, I think that that is the least amount of effort that somebody can do in a situation. And labeling yourself that, that's that's not something that you can just ascribe to. That is something that people who are impacted can label your actions with. Hey, that's that's good ally work. It's going to this idea of it's it's a verb, not a noun. It's not something where you get a badge at the end of the day or a ribbon or participation trophy or whatever that might be. But doing ally work is being uncomfortable and it's facing a lot of the individual issues that you face because doing ally work usually means sticking your neck out there and not knowing what to say and stumbling over yourself and anybody who's had some interactions with me know that I stumble from time to time and I get corrected (laughs) and continue to put myself out there and and this often means facing it from a lot of different directions. Now, this is not just the Kurt and Katie hour of talking about us because that entirely misses the point of what we're talking about. Absolutely. So shifting this, talking about what you can do in these situations. And one of the great places that I've seen in a lot of good ally work comes back to a tweet from Kayla Reed in 2016. And we'll link to her Twitter feed in the show notes. You can find those mtsgpodcast.com. She made an acrostic of what ally is. Always center on the impacted. Listen and learn from those who live in the oppression. Leverage your privilege and yield the floor. And for those people wanting to be doing good ally work. This is a step-by-step aspect of doing this. This is shifting that conversation off of how it's impacting you and redirecting the focus to the issues at hand. The ones currently in the news deal with systemic and racist oppressions against all sorts of communities and dealing with a lot of new ideas that many frankly, white therapists haven't had to deal with unless it kind of inconveniences them or they have the time in their schedule to feel bad about what's happening. This isn't the focus on us. This is the focus on the people who live in this day in and day out. It's not a convenience for other people to move on to the next week of binge watching whatever's on Netflix because they have that opportunity. Listening to those stories, listening to how it actually impacts them. But most importantly, I think, are the last two pieces of this, which is leveraging our privilege and yielding the floor, using what we have to amplify the voices of the people who are most impacted and being able to put out how it affects their lives, how it affects their neighbors' lives, and 
being able to do that for systematic change that takes a long ass time to get done. So when you're talking about these things, Kurt, I recognize that there are a lot of articles and resources that people are putting out that can help with doing ally work. And I think that there are also some specific things that may be important to say about what not to do. And it really speaks to the first always center on the oppressed, because I think there are a lot of folks who are are feeling very inspired to post on things in social media. They're inspired to do something publicly. And I can't find the article, so I will post it in the show notes when I do find it. But there was an article that really very eloquently was talking about really assess your motivation for making those posts, really assess what you're putting out and whether or not it actually is centered on the oppressed or is to make yourself feel better. And I think that to me is critical because if we're doing ally work or claiming to be an ally, using it as a noun to make the point, to make ourselves feel better, to decrease our sense of irritation or agitation, it is exactly the opposite of what we need to be doing. And I think that this gets into some of the white fragility stuff that you're talking about is mm-hmm. for a lot of white people. I mean, I'll, I'll lump us all in together and there could be multiple episodes on striations and intersectionality within all sorts of different communities. This is not the episode for that people. So nope. don't we're wait talking for about that. white people as a collective. Yeah, we are a collective, collective white people. Moving out of that white fragility is something where it's it's not a comfortable feeling. It's no. one that a lot of white people want to get rid of real fast. I know from experience. I know from hearing a lot of other people, a lot of other therapists. Mm-hmm. It's not a good feeling to sit in. We also have the privilege to not feel that every single day. And I think that no. that drives this rush to relieve feelings right away is to go and do something tangible and practical and post a number of tweets or post something, share a news story, whatever it might be that helps to just chip away a little bit at that white guilt. It doesn't move the needle when it comes to being able to actively address things. And if things did move this quickly, we wouldn't have these systemic problems in the first place. Well, and I want to comment on two pieces of that. The first one is amplifying voices and providing visibility is not horrible. It's just not sufficient. Right. What I was actually talking about is things that are actively harmful, shifting the attention to me and either my need for status as an ally or my need to express my emotions in a public space and show everyone how upset I am about it. That is actively harmful and it's, it's redirecting the focus onto me and my problems or what, what I'm doing when you're talking about like, we just need to do stuff. I mean, there is an article that was like white people do stuff and we'll put that in, post that in the show notes as well. Like there's actual things that you can do with absolutely no visibility that pushes the needle forward. And I think that's very hard because people in our spaces are calling on each other to say, well, you have to stand up and say what you believe. And to do so may change the focus off of what the actual situation is to a roll call of who's acceptable. And that's not helpful. That doesn't move the needle on systemic racism, I don't think. Uh, And this goes back to what we teach kids about bullying. You know, if you're a bystander, you're just as big a part of the problem as, you know, the person doing the bullying. But this is also something that I heard came out of female staffers working in the Obama administration is echoing and giving credit to other people's voices as they come up. 
And that way, the people who need to be heard or the people who deserve to get the credit are the ones who get heard. And mm -hmm. so it's one thing to talk about your outrage, not the best thing, but that's in that category of you're making it about you. It's an entirely yeah. different thing to share other people's ideas and to give them credit for it. And also accepting that not every situation requires you to be a white superhero and jump in and, you know, transform the situation that not every situation is going to call for that. Yeah. And knowing the difference between the two doesn't mean that you have to remain inactive, but it can often be something where you can continue to amplify somebody from a marginalized community's voice until a change does happen. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end -end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. And to that end, I, I do acknowledge that the article and the articles in the book that I have mentioned to date are, I think, primarily written by white people. There are two pieces to this, because I think that there is a, a need to amplify voices for people in the marginalized communities, people of color. I think there's also a need to recognize that we need to educate ourselves. But one of the books that I've seen, and that is in my that I'm reading right now that I think is really important is How to Be an Anti-Racist by Iram X. Kendi. And I think we want to make sure that we're also amplifying folks who come from a place of being in these communities and wanting to help to, to teach us on their own terms and their own time. I think there was a, in um, Right Fragility, I think that's her, her wording. But I think asking all of our, our friends of color, our clinicians of color, colleagues of color, what should I do? How do I do this? What, what can I say? What can I not say? that is requiring them to do some emotional labor that we need to be doing ourselves. And there are sources that are both white people and people of color, which is a, an unfortunate binary, but the one that we're using today that can help us with that, that, that anti-racist work that we're doing to address what's within and then also giving us that ability to then address systemic racism. You know, part of this is I'm also looking at an article uh, from medium.com that was authored by Jake Orlowitz. He's the founder of the Wikipedia library. And it goes through 17 myths about being an ally. We'll also include it in the show notes, but highlighting just a couple of these is that you don't necessarily have to be ashamed of your privilege as an individual in these situations either. And being able to identify and use that privilege, this is that third L from Caleb Reed also, is leveraging those opportunities. Now, this is where we're going to talk about not only in the 
systematic way. You know, the cases of police brutality, this is holding accountable local government officials and police departments in echoing marginalized communities' voices as far as how they're going to change their tactics in their approaches to people from underprivileged communities or people who are coming from those marginalized backgrounds. It doesn't have to be your voice, but you can definitely turn things over and say, hey, did you hear person B? Or mm-hmm. person B's concern hasn't been addressed. There's also the way that this is going to translate out in our therapist communities and with our clients. And some of this in some of the discourse that I've seen and as recently as today following up on a couple of Facebook threads that were on the American Counseling Association's page of people not only not doing good ally work, but also people trying to maintain the status quo as professionals. Hmm. And even worse is the ACA going in and deleting those posts, leaving all of the affected, marginalized communities and people doing good ally work in those threads. And I want to give credit to C. Anderson for highlighting this in some of her Facebook posts, but it's frustrating when we try to erase the history. Part of us understanding and knowing and doing good social justice work is really taking ownership of historically where we've been. We can't whitewash history. We can't explain it away. We need to embrace that as professions in order to continue to create spaces for people from any marginalized community to be represented professionally, to be treated fairly to have spaces at the table and that it doesn't take away from those past privileges and past privileged people's histories. I think it's so important to be able to own the history and own the systemic racism. I think when you're talking about whitewashing or removing things from Facebook posts or trying to pretend that these things aren't happening speaks to the idea that if to be a racist, I have to be a bad person versus I'm a racist because I'm in a racist system and it is inextricably linked to the system. And so to deny that the system is racist, to deny the past racism is to invalidate an experience. And it's really gaslighting for people of color, people, marginalized communities that it's like, well, well, we're good now. Nothing ever happened. It's all good. And so I think it is something where being able to acknowledge whiteness and the privilege of whiteness is really hard because, and this is in Robin D'Angelo's book, it's because we don't talk about whiteness, we don't acknowledge racism, we don't acknowledge what has happened. And so the conversation can't even happen. Being able to own what has happened and to be able to have the uncomfortable conversations, I think, is so challenging, especially when we think about how easy it is to, to erase things, but also how easy it is for people to just spew out things that are very unhelpful. They may be real, but they may not be helpful in moving things forward. So so anyway, I mean, I think we need to move into talking about kind of how this shows up, how you can do ally work within therapy. But I think it's something where, and, and just to kind of to go back to the the always centered on the oppressed, listen and learn, leverage your privilege and yield the floor. I think it's something where before we speak, before we take action, we need to assess, am I doing ally work or am I just making myself feel better? 
Right. And I think that, again, this is where addressing the privilege of this quick fix idea and, yeah. you know, a lot of cultural competence, at least beginner level classes of this address, you know, give you the verbiage. Something centers around when clients of marginalized communities come in that, you know, you're, you're given kind of this boilerplate language. How is that to talk to a white person? Or how is that to talk to a straight person? How is that to talk to a man about? Okay, that's one sentence that acknowledges your place of privilege, but it's not something where it fuels a open ability for clients to be able to explore their feelings in any sort of meaningful depth unless you can continue to do ally work through that conversation. Mm -hmm. And that means potentially being a representative of a community that has marginalized your client and recognizing that that's not something that you personally did, but there's still feelings about your representation of that community. And it's not just going to be that conversation. It's going to be the next session and the session after that and stuff that comes up in between sessions. And it's your reactions to that even outside of it. You know, a lot of people have the privilege of, I don't have to talk about being white all the time. I don't have to teach people mm -hmm. about being white. I don't have to speak to people about being cisgendered or any of these kinds of things. And I also don't need to make every session of my clients about the things that I'm not. But when it does yeah. come up is being able to listen to that, validate what the experience is. And if I stumble over something to learn from it yeah, and amplify that as an opportunity for clients in those situations, to feel that there is an opportunity to address this in a healthy way and that not mm -hmm. everything is going to be met with resistance. And I think it comes from that place of cultural humility. I think it comes from a place of not constant vigilance, but I think real attention to what's going on and staying aware of what might be impacting your clients, whether it's in the news, whether it's in their personal lives. I have a client who is a person of color who has been recently experiencing racism. And I had to ask, was not, was not initially volunteered, was kind of a doorknob confession, you know, as much as we have doorknobs in our telehealth sessions. <laughs> but it was, it was something where I had to ask. And then I also had to say, do you want to process this with a white person? <laughs> mm -hmm. Do you want to process this now? You know, is this what you want to be doing? What are the impacts you're seeing? How are you coping with this? And I think the, the big thing that I'm really grappling with, both with my clients and marginalized communities who are being, who are having aggressions toward them or racism towards them, as well as some of my clients who are wanting to do white ally work and are feeling, you know, very overwhelmed with it, is staying present with, there is a part of this we just cannot fix in this moment. Because I had a client say, well, how do I just feel better about this? And it's like, well, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like you've got a broken arm you know, or society has a broken arm. I, I don't know if this is a great way to describe it, but this is what I said to the client. But it's kind of like you have a broken arm and you're saying, how do I feel better? It's like, well, there's going to be pain and it's not a quick fix. And it's not something that I can just magic away with some sort of coping strategy. There are true problems here that you're facing that impact you. And so it's about how do we, how do we decide what we want to do with it? How do we cope with what's real, what we're facing, and how do we find support to help us weather it? 
I mean, I know that there was a post going around saying like white therapists are telling everybody to meditate and and there's a cultural bypass or a spiritual bypass. And I completely agree that that is a tendency for folks. We want to fix this. We want to tell them if you just cope hard enough, you'll feel better. And I feel very, very adamant that we cannot do that because it does not acknowledge what's real. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. I've seen those posts about white therapists saying to meditate on problems. And as somebody who has a practice that engages a lot of mindfulness, you know, knowing that meditation is one kind of mindfulness. Yeah. I'm calling people out on that's bad therapy. That is yes. culturally incompetent because, and again, as an action oriented idea, it's being aware of the feelings, what that drives you to do that mm-hmm. moves that into a, a good practice of therapy. So Part of this is calling out bad therapies it's seen. Yes. It's also calling out racism, Kurt. It's also calling out racism. And one of the other areas that I've seen in social media being talked about this, and this is something that I first saw it from uh, one of our past guests, Dr. Joel Schwartz, on uh, the role of some of the government agencies that come up for clients from marginalized community when they are in crisis, specifically calling 911 or DCFS and the roles around the system that they have, especially calling an officer right now to a person of color's residence if they're suicidal, knowing that things are kind of at a hair trigger right now between those two different communities. Uh, Really understanding the impact that we don't just have blanket answers that work for everybody in our field and understanding that the consequences of those actions might be sending somebody who's going to escalate the situation just because they do represent a community where there's a lot of hostile feelings being directed to right now. Some of it very rightfully so. And I want to speak into that because I know when I was working in South Los Angeles, we had that conversation frequently. So this is clearly not new news. Uh, We know that calling police officers or government officials of some sort to a house where people of color, especially people in the Black community, because there is such a huge rate of Black men being killed by police officers, we had this conversation. And there are some, I think, some tips that I can provide in this moment, because I think it's something where it was something I hadn't thought of at all. And, and so I think one thing is that if you have a family or an individual that is in a community of color and is in a place where they are suicidal, homicidal, there's some sort of risk, there might be child abuse, there's, there's these types of things that you're looking at, it's very important to train them on how to interact with police, talking with them about how to express mental health concerns, making sure that they, you know, they're able to express what safety mechanisms are in place. and and in truth, you know, kind of using that as the last resort because there is there is such a hair trigger and because there's so much there's a lack of awareness about mental health concerns in a good situation. There are some police departments that do have special specialized treatment for or specialized training for some 
officers. There are folks that have therapists or psychologists that do ride-alongs and help with some of these things. So there are potentially ways that that this is being addressed. And I think that's another place where privilege can come in and say, hey, let me go train the police department. Let me help do this thing. I think um, in and this was in Joel's post as well, as people were talking about also creating community around folks who are at higher risk so that neighbors are, are involved in the conversation. You get appropriate releases and you make sure that you're, you're bringing that community in, making sure that you have emergency contacts, you know, especially if you're not seeing somebody in person right now, making sure you know who's around them so that you can actually reach out to a, a family member, a friend, someone who is committed to supporting that individual so that you do not have to call the police or, or CPS or those kinds of things. I mean, I think there are systems in place and there are workarounds. I think some of the feedback was like, well, you have to do some of these things. And I think it's really important to look at, do I have to do some of these things? The job is not to check a box to make sure someone's safe. The, the job is actually to keep someone safe. The job is to report child abuse. The job is not necessarily to check a box to make sure that child abuse has been reported. You know, it's to protect children, it's to protect those who cannot protect themselves. And so I think really being very thoughtful about how you use those systems if you need them and and training families, training clients on how to interact with those systems can be very helpful. You know, as I'm hearing you say this, good ally work as a therapist is recognizing that the system isn't the same for everybody that yes. and then it's following through on that mm-hmm. and it's not expecting that hey you got it right is going to be how it's met because oftentimes when you are involved at that level of crisis with a client nobody's happy and sure that well it feels like it's not a place of winning therapy right as the therapist <laughs> You're not going to get recognized for it, but taking into account all of that intersectionality is getting it, is dealing with the system. It's acknowledging the worlds that other people live in, whether you share that community or not. If you're somebody who's a fellow traveler along the way, it goes beyond doing the checklist of your job. Yes. Acknowledging your whiteness acknowledging the difference in each person's situation and taking action to really do what you're supposed to be doing for your clients versus checking a box to decrease liability. So I think there's there's serving the clients of color. There's serving the clients who are people who are have some sort of privilege and want to do ally work. There's also clients who are displaying racism and being able to navigate as someone who is anti-racist or working to be anti-racist, <laughs> what you do with that? I've had clients bring in those kind of views pretty much throughout my career. And I can tell you that directly addressing it every single time is a very quick way to lose clients and to sure. push them out to the margins of communities and not dealing necessarily with whatever it is that they're seeking out therapy for in the first place. That being said, and I guess I guess I should clarify because I think that there's the overtly racist, mm-hmm. which is what we're talking about. There's also the everyone else who is racist because we're in a racist system. So I just want to clarify we're talking about the overtly racist. Sure. A lot of times where I have found the best work comes in in this is hearing what people fear underneath their isms. 
Yes. You know, we can expand this beyond racism to sexism or classism or anything else, but it's being able to unfold the beliefs that are driving the fear underneath it. And a lot of times it's not necessarily going to lead to a total aha moment, but it's amazing what listening to people's fears as far as being able to get them to be more open to a different viewpoint. And when people feel heard, then they're more likely to hear you. And being able to time that correctly is sometimes a slow and arduous process. And sometimes it means being grouped in with ideologies that you don't necessarily agree because you're not fighting every single step of the way. But as any of you who are still listening to this episode who have faced systemic injustices throughout your lives know that there's patient approaches and there's fast approaches. And patient approaches oftentimes are the ones that lead to the bigger overall change. If people are easily susceptible to fast changes, we have concerns about them in ways that (laughs) are going to impact them. Well, after they leave your therapy office, but hearing through them, getting them to talk more, getting them, you know, hey, where did that come from? What do you mean by that? That can eventually lead to a place of being open, encouraging as far as, well, why do you keep asking about that? I really believe this is a, a unique way that therapists, especially therapists who have this privilege, because I think oftentimes clients who are racist are not going to be necessarily choosing therapists of the, the marginalized communities that they are showing hatred towards. And so this is something where I think we can use privilege and slog through this really long, arduous process because we're going to be able to have that conversation we're going to stay present in that conversation most of the time. I guess sometimes it's pretty hard, but 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 I think we can we can have that conversation. We can be present with those conversations. And I think for me, we've talked about this before. I'm more of a directive therapist, but I think there are these conversations are my least directive. These are the ones where I get very very curious and I really listen to all the pieces and I potentially ask questions in a slightly manipulative way in that it's potentially challenging the reality of their perception repeatedly until they kind of, and not in a way that's super overt, like that's stupid. Where'd you get that idea? But more along the lines of, you know, kind of seeking the evidence or seeking the the perspective to be able to get them to a place where they can potentially add more to their own. We fully recognize that we don't have all of the answers to this. And, are- and we may have done something wrong and are seeking to be, told if we are saying things that are not accurate. This is a system where we want to be actively working on ourselves and and knowing if we've done something wrong and have that conversation. So please let us know what you think. Join our Facebook group, the Modern Therapist Group, and let us know anything that you want added to this conversation. You can also check out our show notes at mtsgpodcast.com. And while you're over there, you can check out what we've got going on with the Therapy Reimagined Conference that we are reimagining again. for (laughs) In a virtual space. In a virtual space for this year. And until next time, I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. 
You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months.